Hello and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about Mimamsa with Elisa Freschi, who is a researcher at the Austrian Academy of Sciences in Vienna and lecturer at the University of Vienna. Hi, Elisa. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. We're going to be focusing on philosophical ideas in Mimamsa, which is a school that's associated with the exegesis of the sacred Vedic literature. Can you just uh, remind the listener who these guys are and what the distinctive characteristics are of the Mimamsa tradition? Well, as you already said, the main characteristic is they originated out of a school of exegesis of the Veda. And as, you, as your listeners already know, I hope so at least, um, the Vedas are a collection of texts which contains a lot of different genres, ranging from the hymns of the Rig Veda Samhita till the Upanishads, about which we have heard a lot. Uh, but the parts the Mimansa scholars are more interested in are the Brahmanas, which are the parts of the Veda which contain sacrificial injunctions. So basically they're not interested in the mythical parts, in the mystical religious parts, they're just interested in the parts which say things like, if you want rain, sacrifice with the Hareri sacrifice. That's actually the part of the Vedas we discussed least, yes, or almost exactly. not at all, in fact. And why is that philosophical in any sense? I mean, what's the philosophy that There's arises? nothing philosophical in this part of the Veda. Well, of course, you can always find philosophy everywhere, just <laughs> like you can find physics everywhere. Uh, but it's not philosophical in itself. What is philosophically relevant is the way Mimansa thinkers approached it. So there is another school which just deals with the exegesis of this text, uh, it's called the Shrauta Sutra tradition, and they just want to make a, a ritual out of the ritual prescriptions they find. So they just want to understand how many spoons of butter you have to use, etc., etc., and there's not, nothing philosophical about it. What is interesting about Mimansa is that they try to think systematically about these prescriptions, and it's led them, it's forced them to undertake issues such as uh, how it is that the Veda is valid, how it is that the Veda yells false cognition and um, how, how sure we are about it, who are the people who are eligible to perform sacrifices. So, and uh, this led to investigations about the concept of subject, as we will see perhaps later. Um, nature of, of Vedic, Vedic language, so that this led them to undertake investigations about language. Um, form of action as it is discussed in the Veda, etc., etc. And they're conscious of this? Do they present themselves as raising abstract issues that arise from the interpretation of these texts, or do they just sort of get on with it as, as if they were led to do it, even though what they really wanted to do was just be offering exegesis of the texts? Well, that's a big difference between Mimans and Shratasudra in this sense. Uh, on a whole, the Shratasudras are just systematizing Vedic texts in order to make sacrifices possible. So it's just a technical thing. In the case of the Mimansa, the Mimansa describes himself as, a, as an itikartavyata of the Veda, a procedure of the Veda. So it's sort of, there's such a reflective element about it, which is which, about which Mimansa thinkers were self-aware. Uh, and this level of self-awareness increases from Jaimini, Shabara, until Kumarila. Okay, that actually leads on to the next thing I was going to ask you. The Mimamsa school, like most of the schools we're looking at in this period, is not a monolithic tradition. It subdivides and has a historical development. 
And I guess the full story of that would be quite complicated, but could you just give us a quick outline of how Mimamsa splits into different sub-traditions? Yeah, the oldest text we have, the oldest text which is excellent, which doesn't mean that it is the oldest at all, but the oldest text which is excellent and which is recognized as the fundamental text by all later orders is called the Purva Mimamsa Sutra and it is attributed to Jaimini. Um, but within the Purvamimansa Sutra, several other orders are mentioned, along with Jaimini himself. So from time to time in the Purvamimansa Sutra, you'll find statements such as this thing's Jaimini, as well as Badarayana says, so, or Badari says, so that Jaimini seems just one of the many authorities mentioned within the sutras. And one of these other authorities who are mentioned is Badarayana, who's credited with the authorship of the Brahma Sutra. So, We'll see that. You'll see that in one of the next episodes. Um, this Purvamimansa Sutra attributed to Jaimini has some consistency, so it's not just a collection of, of sutras, of aphorisms by previous orders with no inner logic. It has a strong consistency, uh, as, as it has been shown by Francis Clooney, among others. There's a big, you can make a big argument about the fact that there was a unitary project about it. Then, after Jaimini, the next level we have is Shabara, who wrote a Bhasha on it, a commentary. A commentary right? yeah. um, but, but Shabara refers constantly to, a, to early commentators whose work is lost. So we don't know what happened between Jaimini and Shabara, but we know that there was a major development. Shabara has a lot more to say, which resembles what we expect to be philosophically relevant. Okay, so effectively we have of uh, an initial level, which is the sutra level, and that already looks like it's some kind of uh, intelligent compilation of the ideas of lots of different people. And then we have a second layer, which is the basha or commentary level, which is, again, an intelligent bringing together of comments by a lot of people on the sutra. Is that right? Not just a lot of people. I mean, Chabra has a pet opponent he always refers to, the Vrittikara, the orders of the Vritti, but the Vritti is unfortunately lost was very much in, into epistemological issues, such as the nature of the instruments of knowledge, which ones are reliable, which not, and he constantly refers to him. So that's not really a mass of people who are interested in for Shabara. This one is really the... It's the a specific name. dialectical context. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then we have a later split into two schools of Mimamsa, which, and this comes after the layer of the Basya. Is that right? Yes and no, because <laughs> Marilyn Prabhakara, who are the main... Um, I mean, they're credited with the foundations of these two sub-schools of Mimansa. The Bhatta Mimansa is the one which has been founded by Kumarla Bhatta, and the uh, Prabhakara school, Prabhakara school is the one which has been funded by Prabhakara Mishra. So at a certain point, it looks like both of them, both of them commented on the Shabra Bhashya, uh, and both of them recognized the authority of both the Mimansa Sutra and the Shabra Bhashya. But their interpretations of the Shabra Bhashya and at times also of the Jaimini Sutra is very different. So they are quite apart from each other. And from time to time, you can guess that uh, there was a tradition, a divergent tradition even before them. Okay. So that Kumaila, for instance, refers to someone who, is, who cannot be Prabhakara because they might have, Prabhakara must have been uh, slightly later than Kumaila. This is an ongoing debate, but I'm convinced by the arguments about, from Kiyodaka Yoshimitsu about the fact that Prabhakara was an earlier contemporary um, a younger contemporary of Kumaila. So Kumaila cannot be referring to Prabhakara, but he refers to ideas which are later to be found in Prabhakara school. Mm -hmm. So it means that before the split, we had two, at least two distinct traditions of Mimansa. 
Okay. That, actually, that's interesting because that means that, as it were, at all three levels, the original sutra, then the basha, then the split into two schools of mimamsa, at every stage you have some lost texts in the background, which are then represented in these earliest texts that we have and, and are extant today, which is actually quite typical for this whole period. Uh, so it's a kind of good warning. <laughs> okay, so now delving into why this is all so philosophically interesting, um, let's just take a specific example of uh, an injunction that you might read in the Vedas. And in things I've read about Mimamsa, a lot of which was by you, there's a, a standard example which comes up, which is uh, the one who desires heaven should sacrifice or should perform a certain kind of sacrifice. Maybe you can tell us how it goes in Sanskrit. Darsha Purnama Sabhyam Svarkakamu Yajeta, which means the one who desires heaven should sacrifice with the Darshan Purnamasa. Sacrifices, which are the sacrifices of the full moon and new moon. Okay, I think it's good that you said that and not me. <laughs> uh, now, what philosophical issues arise from their analysis of a sentence like that? Well, a lot. Let us start from, from the very beginning. This sentence as such, this prescription as such, is not found in the Vedas. So it might be somewhere in a left in a lost part of the Veda, which is mo more typical is that it is an abstraction made by Mimansa Odors which is typical of the way of proceeding. We sort of imagine the Brahmanas, the texts they were analyzing, as if they were ordered texts telling you what to do within a certain ritual from the first act till the last one. It is not like that. They are full of mythical digressions and other stuff. And the Mimansa Odos really sort of rationalized that into main prescription, auxiliaries, etc. So for instance, they created a sort of a, a big amount of exegetical rules out of which you can decide whether a textual passage makes a unitary passage or not. These exegetical rules have then been used throughout Indian philosophy in the rhetorics, uh, um, Dharma Shastra, so the sort of low text of Indian philosophy, etc., etc., uh, and in Vedanta, and in the Vedanta, of course, because they make sense, because they are sort of rational rules of understanding how to connect sentences, how to understand what is still related with, etc., etc. So they. They were the first ones who decided how to how we can def define what a sentence is, for instance. Um, so we have one part which is strictly exegetical, uh, perhaps linguistic and exegetical. Then we have a part which regards what is really being doing by a prescription, so by a Vedic prescription. And at this point, it's perhaps relevant to say that according to Mimansa Odorz, the Veda is odorless, so they cannot say that is telling you God's will, which would be our normal sort of Christian or Christian-influenced answer about what a prescription in the Bible is doing. They cannot do that. So they will start asking questions such as, is there an inner force in the prescription itself or not? And how, that, how is it communicated? Is it communicated through the fact that you understand the prescription? Is it communicated by the force of the uh, injunctive suffix, etc., etc. This idea that these uh, statements in the Vedas are authorless, uh, what does that even mean? I mean, where do they come from if they have no author? Uh, well, this is related with another point about which makes Mimansa so much different than our sort of Christian-influenced worldview, uh, is that they do not believe about the fact that the word had an origin. The word is anadi, beginningless. And unless and until you can prove me the opposite, uh, so unless and until you have a photo of the Big Bang or something like that, uh, we will not believe you. So the point is, 
there is no point in assuming that the world has ever been different than the way it is now. So the Vedas are part of our landscape, intellectual landscape now, and they've always been there. They've always been there, I see. We do not have to look for an origin for that. I see. And looking for an origin is sort of getting out of the picture and it's something, and it is an unwarranted move. So a Vedic prescription would be almost something more like a moral prescription. It doesn't come from anywhere, it's just a rule that you have to obey. Well, for instance, Purushottama Bilimarya makes an, an argument which is quite resemblant, which quite resembles what you said. That is, he says they are sort of eternal moral truths. Ah, okay. Now, one thing that's striking about the particular injunction we are talking about here, if you desire heaven, then you should perform such and such a sacrifice, is that it's contingent on desiring heaven. So if I don't desire heaven, then I don't have to do this. Is that the idea? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's a good point. The sixth chapter of the Purvaimansa Sutra explains that everyone desires heaven because heaven is happiness and everyone desires happiness. Um, and you're right that one might imagine that desire is not something everyone shares. Um, according to Kumarila, who, as we said, is one of the major figures of, Mimansa, of the Mimansa school and who is the one who really brought Mimansa into the philosophical arena, uh, desire is everywhere. No one undertakes an action unless he desires his result, its uh, result. I see. And so this is a, a general claim about actions. This is not only about the Vedic injunctions. It's actually a universal claim about every time anybody does anything, it's because they're acting on a desire. Here we have to go back to the point about the different schools within Mimansa. Uh, in the case of Kumarila, yes, it's a universal claim about human actions. In the case of Prabhakara, not so much, because Prabhakara is very much keener to remain, uh, to, di- to discuss about the Veda, and he's talking about the normal world as if it were an exception to the Vedic world, whereas Kumarila is much more focusing on the normal world and discussing the Veda on top of that. So Prabhakara's focus is much more on the Veda, and in this sense he will speak of desire as the identifier of the one who is eligible to perform a sacrifice. And in this sense, please notice the fact that there's no guarantee that you'll get the result of the, fa- of the sacrifice. The desire is only important to identify you as the one who, have to pre- who has to perform a given sacrifice, even if you might not get it at the end. So there's a kind of way in which I enter into this obligation because I'm the right kind of person, i.e. the person who desires heaven, Yeah. even if actually it turns out that everybody desires heaven. In the case of the Darsha Purnamasa sacrifices, yes, everyone has to perform them because everyone desires heaven, but there are other more specific sacrifices such as if you desire sun, if you desire rain, if you desire to conquer a village, or I mean, many things I do not desire. And, which, for which there would be a sacrifice. Yeah, I mean, if I'm living in a period where there's too much rain, obviously the injunction, when you desire rain, do such and such, doesn't apply to me. In fact, yes. I'd rather the rain stopped. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and also, a lot of these injunctions will only apply to people of the Brahmanic class, is that right? That's an inter- interesting point. The sixth chapter, the one which discusses the issue of desire, of the Purvaimansa Sutra and its commentaries upon it, um, are very sort of open-minded, I would say, from our point of view, from our contemporary point of view, because they speak about the sort of the omnipresence of desire throughout human beings and even animals. And of course they say that women can desire things, so in this sense they would be entitled to perform sacrifices as well, and even people of the lower classes. So they put limitations on that, but they are sort of contingent limitations, such as the fact that women, for instance, would be endowed to perform sacrifices, but they do not own property. 
So they cannot perform a sacrifice because they do not have cows to offer to the uh, priests. But that's something different than saying they are a priori non-rational or excluded, etc. Cetera, et cetera. I see. They have the desire, but they don't have the instrument or the yeah. the requirements yeah, exactly. that they would need. Okay. Just like dumb people. Right. They cannot perform sacrifices because they cannot utter sacrificial mantras. <laughs> but it's not that they are not rational. Or okay, right. Now, in a sense, what you've been describing sounds kind of uncontroversial. So uh, I want to achieve something. The, the sacrificial rule tells me how to sacrifice in order to achieve it. But of course, in the Indian context, this isn't uncontroversial at all, because there are other schools, the Buddhists leave to mind, uh, who tell us that when we perform actions, if we perform actions, we shouldn't do so on the basis of desire. And you don't have to go all the way to Buddhism. I mean, in the Bhagavad Gita, you have this idea of unattached action. So even within a broadly speaking Vedic context, you also have the idea that desire could be eliminated or perhaps just ignored and that one could perform actions anyway. Do they actually have good arguments for the centrality of desire in action? Well, Kumail is quite... Um, rude against Buddhists in this sense because he sort of mocks them for the idea that of claiming that it's pos- it would be possible to perform an action without desire. Um, for instance, he says, "Well, if your if your Buddha really achieved Nirvana and he's desireless, then why why why, why did he start to, uh, teaching? Because in order to teach, you do need to want to communicate something to other people, and unless you want to communicate, you do not even utter words." But once you have achieved nirvana, allegedly, you shouldn't have any desire at all. So either you have achieved nirvana and then you do not teach, or you are teaching, which means you, have, you haven't achieved nirvana and you're just a fake. Um, and of course, there is an opponent within Kumaila's text who replies, well, the Buddha doesn't really utter words, but the words are just coming out of him naturally, without him meaning it. But of course, Kumail is like, you are just a blind believer and how can you think about it? Yeah. Which is sort of fun because we are used, whenever we Westerners read Mimansa texts, we are like, oh, these blind believers, how could they believe in the Veda? But in fact, Mimansa saw themselves as quite rational, empiricist and down-to-earth people and they've made fun of the Buddhists as blind believers. They are the ones who are following common sense while the Buddhists have these bizarre ideas about desireless action. Yeah. Okay. That actually sounds fairly plausible. Yeah, I mean, if, so for example, with this with Kumarila's example, uh, if I'm going to say something, then presumably I have the desire to convey some kind of meaning to the person I'm talking to. But what about this idea of unattached action, so that I might do it because it's the right thing to do for me? So take the case from the, the Gita. Arjuna is supposed to engage in war, but he's supposed to do it in an unattached way. And what that means is that he fights without any particular attachment to the outcome of his fighting. And maybe he does it because he's dedicating his action to God. Uh, It does seem to me to be a, a reasonable position that I could have reasons for acting while also being open to the possibility that the action won't achieve its obvious intended result or apparently intended result, for example, winning the war. Yes, well, going back to the split between Kumarila and Prabhakara, Kumarila would just say, if you are acting in this way, you are acting for the desire to comply to a moral law you believe in, or to please God, or whatever else, to be a good man, or whatever, but still there is desire. Otherwise, you wouldn't even start 
uh, undertaking an action. I see. So the desire would be devotion to instance, God yeah. rather than to win on the battlefield. Yes. Okay, that's a pretty good answer. <laughs> and what's the other possible answer? Um, well, as I said, for Prabhakara, the result is just identifying the one who's acting. So if you... It, it just takes you out of the realm of all possible individuals. It sort of uh, picks you out of it so that you can, you can understand you are the one who has to undertake the action. But then there's no guarantee you will get the result. So the fact of having your desire, of conceiving the desire, doesn't mean that you have to be attached in getting the result. You know you would like to win the battle, but you can enter, and that's why you enter the battlefield, but you do not have to know that you will get results, and that's, without it, no, there would be no point in undertaking any action. In fact, in one part of your podcast, which you will not cover in the next years, I'm afraid, <laughs> that is the later development of Mimansa within a Vedanta setting, some taste odors who are already Vedantins did reuse Prabhaka arguments uh, for about an attachment to the result within a tasting setting to justify exactly these kind of claims. I see. This goes argument. along with his point that you should sacrifice, but bear in mind that it might not work, right? Well, it will work because the Veda is truthful, but you shouldn't just sacrifice because of the result. You should sacrifice according to Prabhagara because the Veda tells you to sacrifice. Okay, I see. Another thing that seems to be lurking behind this theory of action, again, almost too obvious to say, except that in fact it's controversial in this historical setting, is that there is in fact an agent, or we might say a self, who is the one performing the action. So this is the one who has the desire and the one who's going to perform an action. And again, although that seems quite commonsensical, it is being denied within other philosophical traditions. What does Mimamsa have to say in order to persuade us that there is really a self or an agent that is responsible for both forming the desire and then acting on the desire? Yeah, as usual, the Mimansa answer starts with commonsensical assumptions, such as the fact that without an agent, you wouldn't be able to ensure that, for instance, the karma you have been accumulating occurs to you and not to someone else, and vice versa, that you do not get results of someone else's karma. So basically, the whole idea of karma, which is one of these ideas which are shared by almost everyone in Indian philosophy, wouldn't work unless there were an agent. And we know that Buddhist philosophers had a a lot of problems in trying to justify their karma theory without recurring to a, an enduring self. The other opponent, the Kumaila, um, sorry, the Mimansa orders had in mind uh, are sort of Nayaika, Samkhya and Vedanta kind of people who said there is itself but it is changeless and it is sort of out of the realm of actual actions, actual act of cognitions, etc., etc., uh, so that it's not really helping us so much whenever it comes to everyday actions. And Kumail argues against that, saying that this sort of changeless self doesn't really help us. It's very much akin to the Buddhist self, um, insofar as it is of no use for explaining the way the world works. And within the, the Atmavada portion, so the portion about the debate about the Atman, the self, in his Shloka Vartiga, which is one of his main philosophical works, he's even ready to admit that the self is denied nityatva, so eternality, permanence over time, if it means that it can change. So he's even willing to give up the permanence of the self through time, 
so that the self would still be permanent, but it would not, not no longer be changeless because his self needs to be a person. Mm-hmm. It, it needs to be a person who engages in actions uh, and is not at all non-controversial because most in philosophical school would speak either of no self, like the Buddhist, or of a self which is devoid of actions, like Nyaya, uh, Sankhya and Vedanta all of which think that the self is aloof of action and it's not really concerned with actions which are undertaken by lower faculties, which are not essential to the self, they're just accidental to it. According to Kumaila, by contrast, the self is intrinsically an agent. It is intrinsically able to cognize. It is intrinsically able to undertake changes because if it is intrinsically able to cognize, it is also intrinsically able to uh, to acquire new cognitions, and in this sense, it is able to change. His example in this sense it is, is the one about uh, a baby who turns into a child, who turns into an adult, etc., etc., while remaining the same. In the same way, the self can change, it can acquire new cognitions, etc., etc., while remaining the same. So he's very much um, convinced that the self doesn't need to remain stable in order to be the same person. To what extent is all of this just an attempt to make these actual sentences come out true? Because we started with the idea that this is an exegetical tradition. It actually might be surprising to some listeners that this highly religious exegetical project is the one that winds up sort of defending the deliverances of common sense. Yes, I do have a self which is involved in action and knowing things and so on. <laughs> um, so that's kind of a nice irony. But I'm I'm still wondering to what extent this really is all based on an analysis of certain bits of language, because if you think about the grammatical tradition going back to Panini, there is the idea that, you know, there's the thing that's in the nominative case, and this is the thing performing the action, and then there's the action that's being performed, and then there are different ways of grammatically marking the instrument and the outcome and so on. Is this basically just an attempt to say, yeah, the grammar of the situation, the grammar of these Vedic sentences, does actually correspond to the way the world is structured? Uh, well, there are sort of so many things mixed in this question. Um, let me clear the ground by saying that I'm not sure you can call the Mimansa school a religious school. Uh, first of all, because it's very difficult to define what religion is. And secondly, because at least in the Christian-influenced Western world, we think of religion as connected to God, and we must remember that the Mimansa is basically a atheist school. So if you utter the word religious, then listeners might think of things which are not associated with Mimansa, in fact. Um, as far as the, connect, uh, the validity of the Mimansa conclusions outside of the Veda, as I said, it depends a lot on whether you side with Prabhakara or with Kumarila. Kumarila is really a philosopher. He's really one, someone who's within the philosophical arena, within the philosophical debate, he wants to discuss and, if possible, demolish the thesis of the Buddhist epistemological school and the Nyaya views. So I'm quite convinced, and I think it's fairly uncontroversial to say that his ideas should be applied outside the present of validity of the Veda. In the case of Prabhakara, instead, he's much more focused on the Veda, and he tends to think as of normal language as an exception to the Veda. So he would say things like, which sound very controversial to us, such as, and not at all commonsensical, such as the fact that language is inherently prescriptive, which means that whenever we utter a sentence, in fact, there is either, it is either meaningless or it has a meaning only insofar as it is subsidiary to a prescription. 
my standard example whenever I'm trying to describe it to explain it to students is that uh, suppose you're telling your young boy it's nine o'clock then you're probably not really saying just it's nine o'clock because it's interesting to know about it you're meaning you have to go to bed yeah. or <laughs> clean your teeth brush your teeth or whatever so basically it only makes sense as an addition to a prescription but it would be quite hard for us to imagine that all language works like that so that whatever I'm telling you now which sounds like a description of something is in fact only part of the overarching prescription believe what I'm telling you Okay, so basically what you're saying is that the answer to my question depends on which branch of Mimamsa we're in. The one is associating a theory of action with language generally, and the other with a very specific use of language. Is that right? Yes and no. For Prabhakara, Tivedic language is really the paradigmatic cases of la- case of language. So it's not the case that it is a specific kind of language. It looks like that for us, but he was convinced that you can understand language better if you start with the Vedic language and then generalize. Of course, if we come from the other point of view and look at the Mimansa, then it looks like the, of the Prabhagara school of Mimansa, it looks like they are focusing on just a specific case. But they would say, no, we are focusing on the main thing, yeah, the, the on the core. Case. Yeah, exactly. yeah, okay. Uh, another problem that they'd run into is the possibility of contradictions within the Vedic texts, because it's a very big corpus of texts. And so, for example, it might tell you to do one thing in one place and tell you to do another thing in another place. And that should be troubling to them, given that they, I mean, whichever branch of Mimamsa we're in, they obviously take these injunctions very seriously. Do they worry about this? Yes, of course. This is one of the main points of hot topics of debate within Mimamsa. And the standard example is the one of the contradiction between the injunction not to perform any violence, which is nahim syat sarva bhutani, you should not harm any living being, and the injunction to perform the Shiena sacrifice, which tells you that if you want to harm your enemy, you should sacrifice with the Shiena. And if you sacrifice with the Shiena, at the end you'll kill your enemy. And all Mimansa authors agree about the fact that you ought not to sacrifice with the Shiena, but they disagree about what is the reason for that. Because of course, on the one hand, it sounds sort of immoral to say that you should harm, kill someone, on the other hand, if you say that it is immoral and that's why you should not perform this action, then you're putting an authority over the Veda, which is something an, a Mimansa order is not willing to accept. So they had to figure out a different solution. Uh, a possible solution would be to say that there is a hierarchy of prescriptions, such as the fact that basically some prescriptions would apply more generally than others, typically prohibitions, such as the prohibition to perform violence, and in the case of the Shiena, there's another solution which is quite nice and which tells you that, in fact, the Veda just tells you everything. And you're just identified by your desire, um, and it is just your desire which identifies whether you have to perform it or not. So the point is, if you want to harm your enemy, in fact, you should have performed the Shiena sacrifice. But the point is, you shouldn't have come so far. Uh, you are already, you're already <laughs> going wrong if you want to harm your enemy because you're already violating the prescription not to harm any living being, which includes the fact of not harming with your thoughts. So again, it's an application of that idea that the desire tells you when you fall under the scope of a certain injunction. Yes, and it also regards the fact that action, this is something I forgot to say, but might be relevant, action is understood by Mimansa Odors, unlike in the case of Vaisheshika, as the undertaking of, of the action, so the effort of towards the action, not as the physical realization of the action. 
I see. So it's like forming the intention and then sort of commanding your limbs to move. That's the action. It's not the actual moving of the limbs, let's say. Yes. Uh, One last question. You said just a minute ago that there's a very strong sense in which this might be considered not a religious uh, tradition. So you even said it's atheist. Um, And uh, in fact, it does sound like they're so focused on just following these rules and figuring out what the rules mean that a lot of what we might have associated with even Vedic uh, tradition has kind of gone missing. So you haven't said anything, for example, about the afterlife or rebirth or God. Um, I know that later in Mimamsa, they have a more theistic conception of um, the, the whole context and meaning of um, Vedic texts. But why is that all missing from Mimamsa? Or is it not missing? Um, well, that's an interesting question and uh, several possible answers to it. One answer is the one which has been attempted by Asko Barpola in two essays which have been commented upon again and again in the history of the study of Indian philosophy. And Parpola claims that the Mimamsa Sutra and the Brahma Sutra, so the foundational text of the Vedanta school, were originally a single text. And in fact, this, is, this makes some sense because there are both texts refer again and again to the same authors, as I said at the beginning, Jaimini, Badari, Balarayana, etc., and they are structured in a similar way. So that we could think like of the Purva Mimansa Sutra, so the foundational text of the Mimansa school, as just one part of a whole text, uh, the latter part of which would have focused on issues such as the self, God, immortality, etc., etc. This claim is, a, is, however, although it sounds so nice and it sounds so... Um, explicative might be wrong. Uh, in fact, it might be that the Brahma Sutra is just an imitation of the style of the Purva Mimansa Sutra, uh, a later imitation, is the thesis of Johannes Bronkhorst. So I cannot really subscribe to Asko Varpola's interpretation, although it sounds so nice. Um, but either way, it sounds like the two things might be intended to complement each other. The Mimamsa analysis of the rules and Vedanta supplying the the context about salvation and so on. This is surely what happened in history. So it's surely the case that after a certain point in history, Vedantic authors started to use Mimansa as a preliminary part of their own school. This happened throughout these schools of Vedanta, but more clearly in theistic Vedanta. So the Advaita Vedanta of Shankara, which is probably the only Vedanta you'll be able to cover in this part of the podcast, is much more against Mimansa because it is anti-realistic, um, and it is anti-commonsensical. It defends the idea of, of self as changeless, etc., etc. So it, Shankar is much less ready to accept Kumari as preliminary to his own school. But in the West of the theistic Vedanta traditions, Vimansa is seen as the first step within one's continuous development. Okay, well that gives us a perfect transition because uh, we are in fact going to be moving on now to look at Vedanta in the podcast. It's almost as if we planned that in advance. (laughs) Um, For now, I'll thank Eliza Fresci very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me once again. And please join Janardin and me next time as we begin to look at Vedanta next time here on The History of Philosophy in India. Uh